Welcome to Impact AI, the podcast for startups who want to create a better future through the use of machine learning. I'm your host, Heather Couture. Today I'm joined by guest Joe Peterson, co-founder and CTO of Symbiosis, to talk about biophysical modeling for precision cancer care. Joe, welcome to the show. Heather, it's my pleasure and honor to be here. Joe, could you share a bit about your background and how that led you to create Symbiosis? Absolutely. Um, I come from humble beginnings, small town in the uh, the Mountain West, uh, about 3,000 people. So uh, when in, leaving home, I ended up in Salt Lake City, uh, tried to go to the big city, wanted to get, get away from everything. And uh, at the university there, I, I studied both chemistry and computer science and really fell in love with the idea of using computers to solve different problems out there. Early on, this was in a couple of different areas and combustion simulations and molecular modeling. But as time went on, my my interest shifted quite a bit. And and near the end of my, my undergraduate work, I became enamored with the idea of nanotechnology and molecular factories specifically. The idea of could we functionalize molecules uh, in such a way to streamline the production of valuable chemicals. I had some friends who were bioengineers at the time and talking to them, they said, well, gosh, cells already do that. And that's because it was really the, the first point in which I became interested in, in, in biology. So, you know, that coupled with the entrepreneurial epic uh, that was alive in Salt Lake City in the late 2000s, this was the time of Facebook and Twitter and all the other early successes and in the post.com boom in Silicon Valley uh, really got me thinking early on uh, in my career uh, about entrepreneurship, about starting a company. And I always knew that I wanted to start something, but there was always a question about what. Rather than going directly into industry, I, I ended up out in the uh, University of Utah in Champaign, Illinois doing a doctorate program in uh, systems biology, uh, which is a space that includes trying to understand how biology works in a computer. And this is everything from bioinformatics, which is a field routinely investigating uh, the genome and genetic mutations and everything that's associated with that. Uh, but also more recently, the field has transitioned to understanding how cells and other biological uh, principles interact at the scale uh, of, of cells and conglomerations of cells. Ultimately, how do cells interact with their environment and respond to their environment? And it was there that I met during my studies the other co-founders of the company. And over the years, we we ultimately sort of settled on an idea of, of what we could do for a company-wide. And it came out of one particular research project that I thought was just fascinating. My scientific co-founder at the company, John Cole, was investigating E. coli growing in a Petri dish. And what he observed was that, uh, that the bacteria, after they grew to a certain size, would shift into this, uh, this process where some of the cells are producing a particular chemical and some of the other cells are consuming that chemical. And so, these cells that started from the same original mother cell would separate into these behaviors where one is feeding the other. 
and it's ultimately driving the growth of that uh, that entire uh, population. What what was really critical about this was this is happening in effectively every biology lab around the world, and no one had characterized it before. This spatial stratification of the the uh, separation of work among these different cells. So that was a really aha moment for me from a spatial biology perspective that you can capture the interactions between cells in different locations and that they respond to their environment and conversely shape their environment. When we were looking around for the closest analog to this, we were talking about bacteria here, the next closest analog was in cancer. Turns out the cancers actually shape their environment and parts of the cancers shift into a phase where they're producing chemicals that are being consumed by other regions of the cancer. And so that was when the two sides came together and we realized, hey, there's an opportunity here uh, from the entrepreneurial side and the science side to attack this problem differently than anybody had ever done before. So what does symbiosis do? Um, why is this important for improving outcomes for cancer patients? As I mentioned, this idea of cancer and understanding how a cancer interacts within a, a patient body, uh, what's driving the cancer to grow, how is it interacting with the surrounding tissues, that was kind of the scientific question underlying what we, uh, what we ultimately uh, did in creating the company. Symbiosis itself is a med tech company. Uh, we're a technology-driven med tech company uh, that focuses primarily in precision medicine space. And what does that mean? It means we're developing and commercializing technology that helps physicians and patients better understand and better treat their patients or uh, their, their disease. And uh, specifically, what the company does is it develops medical devices. So uh, medical devices are devices that uh, take some input and produce some output. And that output is used in the direct treatment, diagnosis, or monitoring of patients. And so effectively, what we do is uh, take information about the patient we mix it with our novel AI and biophysical modeling platform that I'll talk about here in a little bit and produce information that helps physicians better understand the patient's uh, cancer as well as how to treat that cancer. So connecting back to that sci uh, scientific principles that I was talking about, what we've developed here at the company from a technology perspective is a four-dimensional tumor modeling platform. What this means is that it, it captures both the three-dimensional aspects. So uh, you think about space, uh, X, Y, and Z, much like a computer game. Uh, where are things located? What are they adjacent to? What's the cancer next to? How is it interacting with those? And then we predict over time how that environment changes, whether that be in response to drugs or in response to other type of environmental constraints. So that's adding that fourth dimension to what is uh, sort of the three-dimensional space. Um, the way we do that is a combination of AI and biophysics. So the AI gives us the three dimensions, uh, a digital twin, a digital version of the patient and their cancer within a computer. And then our biophysical platform allows us to 
predict over time how that patient will respond. And that's what gives us this four-dimensional viewpoint into how, what a patient's disease looks like and how it will respond. Our focus at the company initially is in breast cancer. Uh, we are developing medical devices that are uh, intended to be used by the physician and the patient to better treat uh, their cancer, whether that be understanding what the surgery should look like from a spatial context, uh, what surgery is right for a patient, or what drugs are going to be appropriate for that patient, which ones are going to be the most effective in in attacking the, the cancer and, and uh, helping the patient uh, survive. So is the AI aspect used to predict those outputs, which treatments to use, or is it also used to create the, the models themselves, the biophysical models? That's a great question. Um, where isn't ML or AI used in, in our work is, is really the question. Uh, and the answer is pretty much nowhere. Um, we use we use AI or ML uh, at ever, effectively every point uh, in the process, both in our clinical medical devices, but also for our internal R&D. And this uh, varies in a, in a lot of different ways. So um, what is uh, what is unique about the company is, is the biophysics. That's what differentiates us. That bottoms up approach of understanding what the chemical and the physical principles are that, that contribute to how a tumor is behaving and how it's responding. If you've ever seen the way weather scientists simulate a hurricane, we do a very similar thing within the body. Or if you've ever seen mechanical engineers simulate the combustion of a gas in a gas turbine, uh, we do a similar type of thing within uh, these patient models. So, so in that way, that's part of what differentiates us, this sort of ground, uh, grounding in sort of the physics and the physical laws and the chemical laws. How we get to those laws, how we get to those models uh, is impossible without machine learning. So there's a lot of disparate information out there that needs to be brought together to sort of distill these these laws and these these processes that are going on and that's where one of the areas we make use of machine learning an additional area we make use of machine learning is in extracting an image uh, extracting and analyzing imaging uh, Im information from medical imaging and that's both two-dimensional imaging like pathology slides uh, which are uh, slides that a pathologist has has looked at under a microscope and digitized with a with a really a high resolution camera or 3D medical imaging like an MRI or a CT scan that that your listeners might have uh, received maybe if they've bumped their head or if they've ever gone uh, gone to the doctor's office this is really where the AI uh, shines uh, addressing information from medical imaging using traditional approaches is is incredibly difficult and in some some cases impossible to do well. And deep learning, uh, I'll use that somewhat analogously to AI, is really the only way to extract uh, information at that, uh, that scale. But it's beyond that. Uh, we use, as I mentioned, AI both on the clinical application, but also internally for R&D purposes. So one of the things that our biophysical simulations do is create these rich, multi-gigabytes, sometimes up to terabyte data sets on a per patient basis. 
And that's a huge amount of data to sift through to understand trends, why a patient is responding in one particular way to a drug or not. And really, that's another area where machine learning shines is taking rich, uh, high dimensional, complex data and distilling it down to the most uh, most salient features. Uh, so again, that's an example of how we use it internally for for R and D uh, uh, purposes, uh, as well as sort of on the clinical side. But there's also other many other areas we use it. Um, if your listeners have ever heard of uh, the DICOM standard, this is a, a standard for uh, sharing medical imaging data. And it's a standard for a reason in the sense that there are, there are predefined fields that, that store the metadata. Well, it turns out that the manufacturers of MRI machines and uh, the software that store this medical imaging don't often use the standard elements. There are these additional elements within the DICOM standard that are that allow the user to say, I'll stuff whatever type of data I want into it. And oftentimes this is the area where the really salient features are about a particular uh, patient or a particular image. Uh, and it's really difficult to design foolproof rules-based algorithms to extract this information. And that's where fuzzy logic type machine learning comes in. It's, it's a way to sort of capture and structure and uh, pattern match without necessarily having the strictly follow rules. Uh, so that's a third place where ML comes in. And I could go on and on for you know the, the, the next hour here about all the places we use, but that's just to give you a sense of sort of the, the breadth of where ML has, has played, in, played a role in our company and, and how we use it. Um, so, so effectively everywhere. So with all of these models and used in so many different places, are these models all trained independently for a very narrow purpose or is this something that's tuned with an end to end, um, you know, with the final goal in mind? Yeah. So I want to separate that into two, uh, two questions. So I want to drill down a little bit on the biophysical side of things, because that is, is one of the things that separated us from sort of a traditional AI-based uh, company. The, the principle that we, that we set out with with the company was if you're able to distill the processes that go on biologically, chemically, and physically uh, to their essence, you can create building blocks that can be mixed and matched. The idea behind uh, different chemical laws, mixing and matching has long precedence in, in a lot of different industries. And it's one of the ways that uh, we're able to do what we can do without the mountains and mountains of data that often AI companies need. Rather than having to extract statistical trends, we can extract fundamental laws and then build those together. So that's one way to differentiate. So for instance, um, Oftentimes, a patient may be given one drug, another drug, or the combination of those drugs. The approach that we've taken is to figure out what is unique about drug A and what's unique about drug B, such that we can mix what's unique about those uh, for the combination without necessarily have to, having to retrain any of our models. So that's that was kind of the reason why we, we started with a biophysical-based approach. The second side to this question is around training models that uh, that are useful across sort of the internal 
value stream, whether it be image analysis, R&D and extracting information from, from patients, uh, extracting information from medical imaging, natural language processing. In that sense, uh, we build very specific models for each task. So we've got on the order of dozens of machine learning models that we've developed in-house that are purpose-built uh, for the task. Our thought was, let's not ask the models to do too much. Let's ask them to do one thing that we need them to do very, very well. And this allows us to have uh, more collected data or uh, more directed data collection, uh, as well as uh, more clearly defined goals in terms of uh, business value and delivering business value uh, to each of the, the models. So what does this model have to do? What's the performance that's acceptable? Uh, and how do we draw a box around it such that it's not inter interfering with all the other the other uh, models that are out there. Um, and so there's sort of two sides to this coin, depending on whether you're talking about the pure AI-based side of the company or the pure biophysics side of the company. So you mentioned um, a couple different forms of data that you're working with. Could you elaborate on the, the types of input data, you know, different image types or other sources of data that you're using to create your models? Yeah, absolutely. So. Um, again, there's two answers to this question. There's what's clinically relevant, and then there's what's relevant on the R&D side of things. We set out with the goal to develop medical devices that work in the standard of care today. And the reason for that is it's very difficult to change uh, standard of care, especially when you're pulling data from different disciplines. So we use information that is is captured by the primary physician. That's things like the demographics of the patient. We use information that's ex extracted by the pathologist, who's a physician that is primarily focused with identifying and characterizing the disease from pathology slides. That's a very different type of data than the demographic information that the other physician might be collecting. We also pull in radiological uh, information that is primarily captured and analyzed by the radiologist, uh, which is another discipline of medicine. And functionally within hospitals, these are very different processes. They, uh, they occur at different times during sort of the diagnosis process for a patient. They also are data that are stored in different locations within the hospital, whether that's in the electronic health record for the patient or the laboratory information management system for the pathologist, or the picture archiving uh, communication system for the radiological information. So uh, changing the processes at any one of those points is, is a very difficult uh, ask for physicians. So for our clinical apps applications, we decided to work within the standard of care uh, with the data that is currently routinely collected for patients. And with that, we've been able to obtain state-of-the-art accuracies for our predictions about patients in terms of how they'll respond to different drugs. Taking a step back, uh, there's the data that we use to create the research and development models, the, the biophysical models that go in and, and mix with that standard of care data. And there we, we cast a much broader net. Here we're 
pulling in information from many different sources, be it genetic profiling of a particular patient or their disease, what mutations are driving the cancer, for instance, uh, or information about single cells, how single cells are behaving within their environment, what type of transcriptional profiles, which is essentially a fingerprint of how a cell is um, is interacting with their environment and, and uh, responding in response to their environment. To data from animal models or in vitro cell data, which is the type of thing where uh, biologists in a lab will sit down and grow cells in a Petri dish and uh, add drugs to it. And all these different types of data are much more heterogeneous. Uh, they come from many different scales. Uh, they come from many different sources. They're encoded in many different ways. And so there's a huge effort on the research and development side just to extract what's meaningful in those different types of data sets so that we can begin to define those bio biophysical building blocks that ultimately make it into the clinical application. So I'm sure that one of the challenges in dealing with that very diverse set of, of data is just the heterogeneity and how it's stored and collected and so on. What are some of the other challenges that you encounter either in integrating the, these different types of data or in working with some of them individually? Yeah, there's um, <clears throat> clinical data is messy. Uh, well, if I focus on that side, um, Doctors are busy. They're constantly making, you know, making notes and writing up notes about their visits with patients. Um, the software that they use, the hardware that they use, and is oftentimes flawed. And the the data itself is messy. You might have misspellings of words. You might have uh, missing commas. You might have line breaks. You might be uh, missing particular words and statements. So. Uh, that's just one sort of example of where the data is messy uh, and building natural language processing models is is critical to sort of have a general enough models that they can they can uh, account for that but specific enough that you don't need millions and millions of data records to to have the model learn its task uh, really well so that's that's one area. Another area uh, where uh, data is messy is on the imaging side. So if we're thinking about pathology data, uh, the way clinicians actually do this in the lab is they'll take a section of tissue, they'll cut it very thinly, uh, thin sliced, uh, and then they add a dye to it. Uh, and that dye will tell them something about the cells that are uh, in that section. And they'll look at it under a microscope and then they'll digitize it. There's a lot of human elements in that process and there's a lot of variability in that process. Uh, whether it's the amount of dye that was added, how thick the section is, how well the section was added to the microscope slide, how well calibrated the microscope was when it's acquiring the section. So there's all, all these sources of variability in the imaging that need to be accounted for in your modeling. And that's one of the major uh, issues uh, from uh, from a just from a functional perspective. Then there's the heterogeneity in cancer. Cancers are very heterogeneous diseases, and uh, one cancer that's a breast cancer on one slide might look very different from another breast cancer on another slide. And so it's just really, really about capturing uh, the variability and trying to trying to drive out as much variability up front as, as you possibly can. 
And the same is true for three-dimensional medical imaging. If you're thinking about an MRI that's been taken of a patient, oftentimes there'll be noise in, in, in that MRI. Oftentimes the patient will have moved slightly during the operation. Sometimes there are other artifacts due to metal being implanted in the patient or uh, Im uh, implants in the case of, uh, of, of women uh, that have previously had, had breast cancers. So there's oftentimes these, these heterogeneities that you need to account for. And so it, it's a huge, huge uh, effort to, to account for these when developing models, but it really speaks to the importance of characterizing your data up front characterizing the, those variabilities, really understanding what those are, and then trying to ameliorate, ameliorate those as much as possible up front prior to developing models based on them. Do you have any kind of quality control process that reviews the data coming in and maybe rejects portions of it because there's just too many defects, it's unusable, or identifies parts of images that are good and others that aren't? Has that become part of your process? Yeah, that that um, that was a huge part of the process uh, for, for two reasons. One, um, uh, we early on learned that if you feed uh, poor data into biophysical models, uh, non-physical things can happen. That's, you know, that's not something you want. So we early on recognized the need to develop ways to capture uh, and characterize different types of data. Uh, beyond those that are directly impacting the, the operation of our medical devices, uh, we also have developed models that are generally capturing any sort of drift in, uh, in the data over time. So trying to understand if, uh, for instance, a new hospital uh, that's a partner is providing information, uh, say from an MRI machine, that is drastically different from any of the other MRI machines that are out there. This is a, a you know phenomena that's that's routinely known as, as drift uh, within within the the AI space. So we've developed models uh, for both of those uh, applications. So uh, we take a lot of uh, a lot of efforts to ensure that data is coming in is clean to flag uh, definitely corrupt or uh, uh, anomalous data, as well as uh, flag any sort of data that might be suspicious, ultimately for internal review by, by experts, either radiologists or uh, pathologists on staff that, uh, that, that review that data. And in each of those processes, we've found that machine learning is, is incredibly useful and this this spans the gamut of machine learning sometimes we've found that simple linear regression models are able to identify a poor quality data uh, depending on what type of data that is and sometimes we have to you know go all the way to the other end of the spectrum with a deep learning models that we've developed specifically to identify subtle types of uh, low quality data such as uh, issues with um, uh, things called uh, background parenchymal enhancement. It's uh, I won't get into what that specifically is, but it's a it's a subtle feature of certain breast cancer MRIs that often uh, arises in those scenarios. And and we know that uh, that our performance depends on being able to 
categorize and classify those uh, those directly. What this also gives us, there's a secondary benefit to it besides just identifying anomalous data and triaging that anomalous data. It gives us the opportunity to track uh, the success rates of, of uh, data that comes through uh, the medical device. And from a business perspective, that's really important. You, you want to understand outside of just a research setting, but out there in the wild, how well your models are going to work, how often you're going to return a null result or an inconclusive result uh, to a physician or a patient. And being able to track that over time is really important uh, from a quality control uh, cross uh, standpoint. And, and ultimately that's sort of a side benefit that we that materialize out of developing these types of quality uh, quality control uh, networks. And, and that, uh, if I could add one thing to that, this is actually the bulk of where the machine learning happens in the company. Um, we, uh, we certainly have models that are clinically used in our, in our clinical applications or used in a, in a, a clinical research setting in our applications. Uh, that uh, and those are relatively few. It's all the quality control uh, uh, machine learning models and deep learning models that, that make up the bulk of of, uh, of those internally. Yeah. One of the large concerns with AI right now is biased models. How about how might bias manifest with models trained on on medical data like yours? Um, and what are some of the things your team is doing to mitigate it? You hit the nail on the head. This is a really important, uh, important uh, aspect to uh, to AI. Um, a lot of high profile cases um, that uh, that sh uh, that you refer to, and that I'd like to talk a little bit about. But um, you know, unfortunately, uh, you know, bias is not new in the medical research or the clinical care community. Um, you know, if, if you think uh, way back, there is bias in treatment, and some of that continues to exist today. So, uh, unfortunately, it's it's something that exists. And our responsibility as practitioners of AI is to not only identify and understand that bias, that historical bias, but also try to account for it as as best we can. And one of the examples uh, I'm sure you're you're aware of, and and probably many of your listeners have also had the uh, the opportunity to hear about is uh, the fact that pulse oximeters uh, don't work uh, either at, uh, the inaccurately or simply can't read oxygen levels uh, for patients with darker skin tones. Um, this is this is something that is outside of sort of the, the space of AI, sort of traditional device uh, uh, development uh, quality issues that that got through. Uh, but sort of highlights those issues, uh, you know, with bias in, in in the field here. There's um, a couple of examples though that are that are unique to the breast cancer space that I'd like to talk to. That I, since it's an area that I'm most um, familiar with, um, and these are things that anybody working in this space, whether it be in the AI space or just more broadly on on breast cancer in, in particular, you should be aware of. Um, the first example is clinical trials. Um, so women 
uh, with breast cancers that are in clinical trials tend to have median ages that are significantly younger than those that are treated in the clinic. Generally, you know, on the order of five to 10 years younger. And part of the reason is that the patients that are healthy enough to undergo clinical trials tend, tend to be younger. But what that means clinically, if you're thinking about the use of a device or a therapy and trying to understand how it's actually going to behave in the clinic, uh, whether that be adverse events that are associated with uh, the therapy or the efficacy of the therapy overall, uh, they may be very different from what uh, the clinical trials initially read out. And this is something that's really important for clinicians and researchers to think about as they're developing uh, novel therapies uh, and, and to really sort of understand uh, and, and track uh, over time. Luckily, there's been a revolution in a field called real-world data, real-world evidence that's trying to track the efficacy of drugs and medical devices after their approval by the FDA for use clinically. Uh, to get a better picture of how they actually work out there in, in the real world. There's another example, though, uh, that was similar to sort of the pulse oximeter example I first started with, which is uh, that of the Oncotype DX test. This is a, a early uh, developed breast oncology test. It's a genetic test uh, that's been around for uh, almost you know, a decade and a half now. Uh, and what it does is it uses uh, gene markers within a patient to determine whether or not uh, they'll be a good candidate for chemotherapy. Um, in 2021, after uh, a huge study and a few independent scientific uh, works, uh, it, the observation came back that the, the test was much less accurate in black women than it was for, for white women. And this could represent a lot of different factors. I don't think we have really teased out yet today what, what the underlying reason is. It could be socioeconomic, it could be uh, genetic, uh, it could be, or most likely is a combination of, of, of both. Um, but regardless, this was something that wasn't known about the test previously. And what that means is that for, for a very long time, patients, uh, especially Black patients, have probably been treated uh, suboptimally. Now, this isn't, to, this isn't to downplay the importance of the Oncotype DX test. The test is incredibly uh, important and has been incredibly transformative for uh, breast cancer care. I mean, it's, it's changed many women's lives, but I think it highlights the fact that even for tests or algorithms that we feel like we understand very well, those biases might persist. And really, at the end of the day, what we need to assess when developing drugs or algorithms or devices is how they were trained, how they were tested, and really stratify those patient populations as best we can to sort of understand at the very least how they're behaving. Now we have diagnosed the problem with Oncotype DX. There is a possibility to, for the developers of that test to go out and improve it. Before, we didn't know that that, wasn't, that, that was a problem. And, and as, as a consequence, nothing, nothing was done about it. So really 
drilling deeply into the data that's associated with uh, the medical device and its approval is really important. And, you know, to your other question, which is around addressing bias, I think you you asked how uh, how we address bias internally um, and, and how others might think about that. You know, this is probably not a particularly satisfactory answer, but uh, as a company, Symbiosis has had the opportunity to work with uh, a diverse set of organizations across the U.S. This is both geographically diverse as well as diverse in the patient populations that are that uh, are treated at those organizations. Um, and we've made great pains to collect data across uh, sort of patient populations. And so we're in a we're in a good place in that the data that we have access to is very representative of uh, the U.S. population. Uh, further, we've there's another area where bias can come in, it, not just sort of on sort of the immutable characteristics of patients, but also in terms of how the data is being collected in the clinic, whether this is ver variety of machines being used to collect that data, uh, whether it's collected in the academic or community setting, uh, how uh, the what the quality of that data is and We've spent a lot of time trying to uh, account for that variability as, as best we can. That said, we don't have a perfect data set, and we're constantly thinking about ways to to improve it. For instance, you know our data set tends to be underrepresented for Asian women, uh, not just Asian women. If you're looking at the the use of context in the U.S., where uh, they make up, I think, uh, around five to six percent of the the population, but worldwide, Asian women represent a, a very large uh, fraction of of all patients with breast cancer, and our data set is definitely underpowered uh, for, for instance, distinguishing between uh, women of South Asian, uh, East Asian descent, or Western Asian descent, or, or Northern Asian descent. Uh, which have been shown to be sort of uh, in, important uh, uh, distinctions in, in some cases. Um, but I think what what it comes down to is uh, being as open and uh, being as transparent and really looking at the data that you have. Uh, at the end of the day, um, if doctors are going to trust medical devices and if they're going to trust AI, they need to have information about how the device was trained, what the fraction of patients of different populations, what their genetic you know, markers are, um, what the effect sizes are and the statistic, statistics supporting use in all the different uh, potential populations that they'll be treating so that they can understand. And while uh, it may be cost prohibitive in the short term to uh, have a completely representative population uh, for, say, worldwide use, by looking into and stratifying the patient populations uh, in that way, we can better understand where we need to targetedly uh, uh, spend resources to, to collect potentially more data to, to, to better understand the performance in those places or to improve, improve our algorithms. But again, at the end of the day, it's really about transparency. Uh, it's about saying, you know, uh, enabling the patient and the physician to, to understand what was used to create the algorithm so that they can understand uh, the context and the limitations in a clinical setting. That's all very good advice. And I 
I definitely see an increased emphasis on this over the last few years, both in the research community and startups and larger corporations. As you said, gathering the data so that you can um, do the analysis and and the calculations to identify potential biases. That that's the the first and a very major and important step. It's really it's really encouraging that there's a focus on this today. I think it's really encouraging that the regulatory agencies have highlighted this and that the large companies, the large medical device and drug ma uh, manufacturers are, are cognizant of this. Uh, that said, there's a long way to go in this space. And really at the end of the day, it's I, I think it, it comes down to being sort of principled as a scientist and, and really trying to understand what the data is telling you and what type of claims can ultimately be made uh, about that about that data. Uh, that's not to say that um, maybe if you're underpowered in a particular area that uh, that a drug or a medical device can't help in that in that setting. There's a huge amount of discretion that physicians can can use in the practice of medicine, but making sure they know where those uncertainties are and where those blind spots you know might be, so that they can go and truly informed. I think is is really important, and I think the field. And the industry as a whole is moving in, in that direction. Is there any advice you could offer to other leaders of AI-powered startups? Yeah, this is a great question. Um, and again, from a medical context, that's that's my background. Uh, there's a couple of things that I would I would suggest. Um, adopt good machine learning practices early, uh, just like good clinical practice or good manufacturing practices. There are standards that are now being uh, drafted and, and adopted that talk about what processes you need to do to develop good machine learning models, whether that be curation and providence of data to versioning of the models to analyzing the outputs to reporting on those models. I think starting with that and the frame, uh, you know, early on in, in the research and development process prior to productization rather than ret retroactively trying to retrofit it on is, is super important. Um, another area that's super important in the, in the clinical space is proper access controls and processes to, to access data, as well as track data. So, so data provenance, versioning the data, uh, tracking where it came from, tracking who touched it, uh, tracking what models have touched it and been trained on it and tested on it. That's all just good machine learning practice, but it's especially important in a clinical or a, a research uh, context for healthcare uh, where there are certain regulations around uh, uh, sort of patient data and patient rights. Um, also, if we're talking about sort of medically focused startups, uh, figuring out what your access to data is early and finding good clinical partners uh, to work with to provide data uh, and working through the licensing process and the partnership process to ensure you have data that's going to, number one, be appropriate for your algorithm, but number two, that's going to be useful in, uh, in stratifying those patient populations across the factors that are important 
just like we were talking about sort of from some from the bias perspective or from the context of use if you're only collecting data from academic institutions you're going to be missing out on the the whole community care setting and we know that there are differences in those those spaces so think really hard about where that data is coming from how representative it is and what sort of claims can be made from it and then i think uh one way to do that is to connect what the goals of your startup uh, is to the goals of the, the the collaborators. There's hunger among many researchers to be at the forefront and to to drive both the development and the adoption of AI. Doctors know that AI is going to make their lives better, that it's going to make them superhuman in treating uh, their patients within the very near future. And they're very interested in that. So, you know, this other side of the coin there is, you know, find the right partners from a data perspective, but also find the right partners to sort of drive uh, drive the, the questions that you're, you're addressing and ultimately uh, the, the clinical uh, actions that you're, you're trying to, to address. I also think, um, Investing in data curators, in addition to data engineers and deep learning engineers early on is really important. Um, there is, There are a lot of uh, deep learning engineers uh, that are highly specialized in coming up with unique ways to process data and network architectures and fine tuning training uh, networks. Oftentimes they spend a lot of their time doing data curation uh, and data engineering and thinking early on about separating those two activities and the responsibilities there, such that you have experts in the data uh, that are somewhat separated from the actual nuts and bolts of building and assessing the models. That can be really helpful sort of early on rather than just hiring yeah, a dozen deep learning engineers and, and hoping that uh, hoping that they'll be satisfied uh, taking close look over the data and, and engineering the data. So I, I think that that could be helpful uh, to, to many. Um, there's one other piece of advice that I would offer, which is around uh, not falling into the trap that believing a model will generalize uh, to all scenarios magically. Uh, we suffered a little bit from this early on and it became very clear that models that are built to do a single task excellently well is, 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 very, uh, is a better approach than trying to build a model that does uh, four or five tasks really well. And this, this isn't just about tasks. This isn't just about classifying a dog versus a cat. Uh, or classifying a, a, a you know a, a cancer versus a, a benign mass in a medical image. It's also about what you're asking the the machine learning to do. So if you have a lot of variability across machines, say you have two MRI manufacturers that uh, collect images slightly different, doing the due diligence up front to figure out how how the variability looks and how the heterogeneity between those two factors look uh, such that you can potentially create solutions that account for that prior to asking the machine learning model to 
for instance, classify cancer in an image or segment a tumor lesion from, from an image. If you can collapse that level of, uh, of heterogeneity up front using some creative human engineering, you know, noise reduction techniques, traditional computer vision techniques, that can be really helpful in creating solutions that work, work well. Yeah, your last point about the variability, that that's probably the most common challenge I see with the clients who I work with. And there's many different solutions for it. One you said is normalize out those variations, but there's a variety of things you can do. But knowing that that uh, variability is in there and handling it up front definitely is key. Finally, where do you see the impact of symbiosis in three to five years? Well, this is a great question. And um, I'm glad I get to, to talk to it. Our goal as a company is to be the precision medicine tool across not just breast cancer, but several cancer indications. We want to have impact across the entire value stream of clinical diagnosis through care delivery within breast cancer initially, uh, but also beyond breast cancer. Ultimately, we want to be able to, and we believe our technology has the, the possibility to scale to effectively any type of solid uh, tumor that, that's out there. Uh, and so uh, we would like to, uh, to, to help out in the diagnosis, the treatment, the prognosis, and ultimately uh, sort of the surgery planning for, for patients. And that's ultimately where the company wants, wants to go. And I think there's an opportunity uh, to help and um, there's certainly a lot of headwinds, uh, but there are also a lot of tailwinds that we have, which you know are, are, are pushing us along. And it wouldn't be a startup without both. So uh, it's been a fun journey. It's been uh, you know there's a lot of promise in where we'd like to go, um, and uh, keep keep a, keep a watch on us as as we continue to grow. This has been great, Joe. Your team at Symbiosis is doing some really interesting work for precision medicine. I expect that the insights you shared will be valuable to other AI companies. Where can people find out more about you online? Uh, they can find out more at uh, symbiosis.com. Um, I'm not on any social media, so that's uh, the best place, best place to find out. Perfect. Thanks for joining me today. Thank you very much, Heather. I appreciate it. All right, everyone. Thanks for listening. I'm Heather Couture, and I hope you join me again next time for Impact AI.